0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to
2: come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
3: Hello and welcome to a special series of pathology podcasts celebrating the second National Pathology Week held by the Royal College of Pathologists. I'm Ben Valsler from thenakedscientists.com, and in these podcasts, I'll bring you some of the highlights of Pathology Week, along with interviews to explain more about the importance of pathology in society. This year's events focused on pathology, the heart of modern healthcare, and considered many different aspects that affect our understanding of the heart. In this series of podcasts, we'll be discussing how thinking about heart problems could save a baby's life, the heart in art, and the ethics of heart surgery. In this podcast, we're dissecting the anatomy of a heart attack. This was an event held at the Royal Institution as the climax of National Pathology Week.
0: Welcome to this event which forms part of National Pathology Week. As you've heard, my name's Susie Lishman. I'm assistant registrar at the Royal College of Pathologists, but I have a full-time job as a consultant histopathologist in Peterborough. As a histopathologist, I look at tissues, both with the naked eye and under the microscope, to diagnose disease. The aim of National Pathology Week is to raise awareness of what pathology does, of its central role in modern healthcare. It's often something that's seen as being behind the scenes. People have tests done and they wait for the results to come back from the lab, but they don't necessarily know what's happened to them. So uh, this evening we hope to tell you a little bit about what some of the different pathologists do. And we've teamed up with the British Heart Foundation to bring you this event based on a heart attack. Just to let you know about the format of the evening we're going to uh, see a virtual autopsy, for I hope fairly obvious reasons we can't do a real one here in front of you. And for similarly obvious reasons, the heart that we're going to dissect is going to be a pig's heart and not a human one. But we will be showing you what pathology looks like in a human heart through our slides. There'll then be an opportunity to hear a little bit from the pathologists in the audience, and a chance to ask them any questions you may have, either about tonight's event or about pathology in general. The theme of National Pathology Week this year is Pathology, the Heart of Modern healthcare, in which we're focusing on the role of all the different pathology specialties in the prevention, diagnosis and treatment of all types of heart disease. And there are many types, just as there are many different types of pathologists. When people think of pathology, they often think of dead bodies. That's what comes to mind. They've perhaps seen Silent Witness on the television or CSI, And they see these scientists doing glamorous things and solving crimes. And that's the perception that people have.
1: But forensic
0: pathology, detecting unnatural deaths, actually forms less than 1% of all the pathologists in this country. The vast majority of pathologists work for the benefit of the living, working in hospitals, on hospital wards, in outpatient clinics, working in the community to look after living people. If you've ever had a blood test, a urine test, a cervical smear, a biopsy... All of these will have been interpreted by a pathologist. You may not have realised it. Um, So this evening, as I say, we've teamed up with the British Heart Foundation um, to try and really hit home the fact that 70% of all diagnoses in the NHS involve pathology. So you go to the doctors, you may not think for a second that pathology is going on behind the scenes, but the chances are that you will have had a pathology test. Over 700 million pathology tests are performed in the UK every year, that's an average of 14 for every man, woman and child. And that's a lot of pathology tests. So I'd now like to hand over to Professor Peter Weisberg, who's Medical Director of the British Heart Foundation to tell you a little bit about the role of the BHF.
4: Thank you, Susie. Um, Good evening, everybody. I'm Peter Weisberg. I'm the Medical Director of the British Heart Foundation. And just so you know where I'm coming from, I'm I'm a a cardiologist, so I see patients with heart disease, and I've spent most of my life doing research into heart disease. Um, I just want to tell you a few things about the British Heart Foundation. It's not meant to be an advert, but just so you understand uh, uh, what we do. We are the nation's leading heart charity, and we fund... Uh, Just over half of all of the heart and circulatory research that's done in UK universities, outstripping the government and everybody else. That means that uh, last year, for instance, we spent approximately £100 million, uh, mostly on research, but also on things like prevention and care. Every penny of that money is donated by people like you, so it all comes from the public. We don't receive government money. We rely entirely on legacies and donations and people doing events for us to bring that, that huge amount of money in so that we can do the research. And we fund all sorts of research. We fund the very basic forms of research, and you'll hear a bit about that tonight, from molecules and genes in the laboratory, right the way through to clinical trials in patients uh, uh, for new treatments and diagnostic tests. We cover the whole gamut. And as I said, we like to follow through so that if There is a new discovery either that we've produced or that uh, someone else has produced that we think should improve clinical practice. We're very quick to try to make sure that that's cascaded into the clinic as quickly as possible. Much of what we know about heart disease today and a lot of what you'll hear about comes out of the sort of research that we've been funding over the last uh, 50 years or so. And pathology has played a very major role in that. Uh, I should mention one very particular pathologist called Michael Davies, who was actually an associate medical director at the British Heart Foundation a few years ago before sadly passing away. And it was his seminal observations as a pathologist in St. George's Hospital looking at patients' hearts after a heart attack which uh, led us to understand what the mechanisms of a heart attack are. And from that has flowed the sort of clot-busting treatments that are now routine for patients with heart attacks and also some of the treatments that we use to stop people having heart attacks. We fund, as I said, prevention and care activities. So we have nurses, heart failure nurses, genetics nurses. We provide information and pamphlets. We go into schools. We teach them about prevention and about diet and about exercise. And we fund other healthcare professionals. Defibrillators, the machines that you see on stations. Uh, We have funded literally thousands of those around the country. Uh, And finally, we have a policy role. Uh, you may remember a few years ago the advert about the sticky cigarette that dripped over everybody's clothing and made everybody feel sick. That was one of our adverts. And recently we've had something of a coup in that we've been part instrumental in persuading the government that they should ban uh, cigarette machines in places where children can get at them so that children can't get at cigarettes as easily as they might otherwise do. So those are just a few of the things that BHF's uh, uh, done. And I'll take this opportunity now, even if you haven't, to thank you for any contributions you may have made over the years i suspect many of you have because a lot of people do thank you
0: our event is a scenario event we're going to it's set in a family and i'd like to introduce john who's a member of the family that we're going to be talking about this evening
5: my name is john 42 years old i have a wife and uh, two children aged 12 and 14 i'm devastated at the death of my brother david who died at the age of 46 he lived a good life, he smoked. He, he, he never smoked, he drank very little, he played football twice a week and he dropped dead at the age of 46. He was out shopping last week and I just don't know why.
0: David is one of many people who die and nobody knows. They haven't seen their doctor recently, they didn't have a disease that was being treated and so his case has been referred to the coroner. The role of the coroner is to establish the cause of death and so they give consent for a post-mortem to be carried out. Now, the other way in which post-mortems can be carried out is if consent is given by the family. Uh, in that case, the coroner would not be involved at all, and the family would give consent for the post-mortem to be done out of medical interest. It would help the doctors who looked after the deceased find out exactly what had been going on, perhaps find out about any response to treatment that they may have received, or see how advanced the disease was. But in those cases, the cause of death must be known, Otherwise, the case would have gone to the coroner. Now, over recent years, the number of hospital or consented post-mortems has fallen rapidly, and there are now very few of them done in this country. And you may think, and a lot of people think, that with modern imaging and all the diagnostic techniques that are available for us when we're alive, that there's now no longer a role for the postmortem. But in fact, a lot of research has shown that up to 25% of causes of death that are thought to be fairly confidently known at the time of death are proved to be completely wrong at postmortem examination and so despite all the wonderful technology and imaging techniques that we have postmortem still remains the gold standard it isn't an old fashioned method it's not something that's just consigned to the anatomy uh, department postmortems really have a very valuable role in teaching the current generation of doctors about disease and about how to treat their patients but in this case, the case has been referred to the coroner and he has instructed Dr. Ali Wynne-Stanley, a consultant histopathologist, to perform a post-mortem.
6: Thank you, Susie. Tonight, with the help of David and a pig's heart, I'm going to illustrate to you how I'd perform a post-mortem. As Susie said, initially it's very important to make sure that you've got the adequate consent. In this case, it would have come from the coroner. When I perform a post-mortem, the first thing I do is I make sure that I have as much information as I can before I start. I do this by looking at the hospital notes, the A&E notes, and sometimes I phone the GP. Once I've collected all the information I can, I then start the post-mortem. Now, when I start the postmortem, I first make sure it's the right patient. I do this <laughs> for obvious reasons. I do this by checking the name and date of birth and hospital number, which are usually provided by identification tags around the wrist and the lower leg. Once I'm happy, it's the correct patient. I then look carefully externally for any signs of disease. Now, if we were looking at, uh, if we were suspicious of heart disease, we may find the patient was overweight or obese, a risk factor for heart disease. We may see signs of high cholesterol in the blood in the form of white plaques around the eyes, known as xanthelasma. Or there may be more subtle signs, such as loss of hair on the lower legs, which suggests that the blood circulation is sluggish to the lower leg due to blockages in the arteries. So once I've examined, the body carefully from the outside and gained all the information I can do and also looked for any scars which may indicate they've had previous surgery. I then make my incision. Unfortunately for today, I have to use a pen. (laughs) Okay. So I'd make the incision. We go from behind the ears in a Y-shaped incision and then down the midline. (laughs) Slightly ticklish cadaver. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Once I have made the incision, I then reflect back the skin and remove the front part of the rib cage. This allows me access to have a look at the lungs and the heart and also at the abdominal organs. I remove all the organs and I weigh them and examine them. For the purpose of this evening, I'm going to look at the heart in particular. Here's one I prepared earlier. As we said, it's a piggy heart, so it's not a human heart. So This is the heart. It's a pump. It pumps blood around the body. It's divided into a right side and a left side. The right side receives blood from the body, which is low in oxygen, and pumps it to the lungs. The left side receives blood from the lungs, rich in oxygen now, and pumps it back to the body. Both the right and the left side are divided into atria and ventricles. The atria act as reservoirs for the blood, and the ventricle pumps the blood around the body. You can see here that we have this big vessel at the front. This is the pulmonary artery. This one at the back is the aorta. That will take blood around the body. The pulmonary artery takes the blood to the lungs from the right side of the heart. In a gentleman of David's size, the heart would weigh about 300 grams. I examine it carefully from the outside to look for any roughening of the surface, which may indicate this had previous inflammation of the outside of the heart, for any indents, which may indicate scarring from old heart attacks, and I check to look at the size to make sure one side is not more enlarged than the other. As with any organ, although it's bathed in blood, the heart um, needs its own blood supply to to supply both oxygen and nutrients to the muscle. Now, this is in the form of the coronary arteries. There's small arteries here, the coronary arteries, and they go the left coronary artery and the right coronary artery. The left coronary artery branches and sends a a, um, branch off underneath the auricle. There are two auricles, one on the left atrium, one on the right atrium, which um, look like ears in the so-called auricles. They don't do that much. So the circumflex artery runs along here to the back of the heart. The left anterior descending runs along the front, And the right coronary artery extends out to the back of the heart. Now, I take transverse slices. I'm looking... I would do this in a human heart. I look for any areas of calcification or what is known as atheroma, which which is the blockage you get in the coronary arteries. The atheroma is formed by fat-filled white cells that deposit themselves in the wall of any artery in the body and form an outpouching or kind of nodule to the wall. Now, in the coronary arteries, this can be so severe that the actual atheroma totally occludes the coronary arteries. Or the atheroma, because it's full of fat, bursts open and releases the fat onto the lumen of the coronary artery. And this makes the surface all sticky. And then you get blood clot attaching to the wall of the artery. Now, in a large bore vessel, such as the aorta, the big vessel that I showed you here, this one, you can see that a little bit of blood clot isn't going to make much difference to blood flow through that. But when you're talking about a narrow-bore artery, such as the coronary arteries, this can completely occlude the lumen. The result of this is that the blood can't get to the area of the heart that that vessel should supply. The myocardium, which is a heart muscle, can't get the oxygen it requires, and the, heart, the muscle cells die. And this is known as a myocardial infarction or heart attack. So once I've looked for any evidence of atheroma and occlusion of the coronary arteries, I then take three slices of the bottom of the heart. So we're looking for, after 24 hours, a myocardial infarction or heart attack, when we look at it, will show areas of reddening due to hemorrhage within the dead muscle. And over a period of about three months, this um, hemorrhage and the dead cells will be cleared away and it will be replaced by fibrous tissue. And this leaves a pale, fibrous scar in cases. And we often see this at post-mortem, that we find that there's little white areas in someone who's had a new infar- infarct or heart attack. But there's areas where they've obviously had old heart attacks where they, haven't even be- they either haven't picked them up or they haven't complained about their chest pain or they um, have survived their heart attack. The left ventricle, which is this one, is much thicker than the right ventricle. And this is because the left ventricle pumps the blood throughout the body. So it has to do a lot more work. So it's pumping a lot harder than the right ventricle that just has to get the blood up to the lungs. I think this quite nicely illustrates the the only difference I've found so far in the hearts of pigs and humans. And that is that the left ventricle is much thicker in the pig. I don't know why. That's because in the human, the cardiac muscle is usually about 1.5 centimetres in maximum thickness of the left ventricle. and the right ventricle, it's about 0.5 centimetres. So in a pig, it's a bit bigger, but that doesn't really matter to the pig anyway. Then we're going to open up the heart in the direction of blood flow. This is the right atrium, right atrium and here you can see my finger is going through the, two, the origins of the two main uh, veins that bring the blood from the um, body to the right atrium and this is called the superior uh, vena cava and the inferior vena cava so if I open up here and then I open up into these little ear shaped oracles in patients with a regular heartbeat such as atrial fibrillation you can get clots forming in these little appendages and that can cause problems and um, you can get thrombi flying off to different sites in the rest of the body so if I extend my cut through into the right atrium, or what's left of the right atrium, we can see the tricuspid valve. Now, this valve is um, a thin valve, and it's, it stops the blood. Once it's gone into the ventricle, the ventricle contracts, and the valve stops the blood from squirting back into the atrium. Now, if we have the le- look at the left side of the heart, there are also some veins in the left side of the heart, And these are the pulmonary veins. And they take the blood from the lungs into the left atrium. So if we go up out of the right ventricle into the pulmonary artery, you can see there's some more valves here. And these are thin valves at the base of both the pulmonary artery and the aorta, which stop the blood. When the ventricles relax, the blood then doesn't squirt back into the ventricles. It carries on going around the body. There's also one on the aorta, which is known as the aortic valve. The muscle thickening we saw in the pig can be seen in patients with high blood pressure or with thinning of these, a stenosis of these valves. And that's because the heart has to work much harder to get the blood around the body. It becomes thicker. Same as when you have a bodybuilder pumping iron and increasing his muscle bulk. The heart does the same thing. So, I've now examined the pig's heart, and I'm happy that there isn't any coronary arteries in the pig, but it didn't smoke, and it hasn't got really any risk factors for heart disease. So, I'd now like to have a look at what David actually died of. So, here you can see the right coronary artery here that we couldn't see through the camera, and it's completely occluded by thrombus. So, in David, he's got coronary artery thrombosis in his right coronary artery, And the thrombus is the blood plot that I was talking about earlier. Then here's a cross-section. This is what we look down the microscope. We see all these things macroscopically, and we take sections through them. And then we have a look at them down the microscope. And you can see you've got thickening of the wall. This is much thicker than it should be. And all of this is full of these foamy macrophages that are just full of fat. These big kind of oval shapes, this is all cholesterol. They're called cholesterol clefts. And they elicit an inflammatory response around them. You can see some of these foamy macrophages at the top as well. And this is all because it's just full of fat. This is a section from David's heart. It's a bit different from the pigs. And you can see here the hemorrhagic area that I was talking about that's classical for myocardial infarction. about 24, 48 hours old. So once I've examined all the organs and I've weighed them, And I've decided on a cause of death, which in David's case, I'd say that the actual cause of death was that he infarcted his muscle or killed his myocardium off, so that's called a myocardial infarction, that the cause of myocardial infarction was thrombosis of the vessel or blood clot in the vessel, and that the cause of the underlying blood clot is the fact that he had coronary artery atheroma. And that's how we fill out a death certificate. I then have a look for any other diseases that may be there, coincidental diseases such as the patient may also have lung cancer. The lung cancer didn't kill them, but it's still really important to have it documented that they did have lung cancer. Once I've done this, I put all the organs back into the abdominal cavity and I sew up the, my original incision in the same way I would do after a, a surgical procedure. Then David can be dressed and viewed by the relatives even after the postmortem, and because of the shape of the scar, it's not usually visible. Thank you very much, Ali. Um,
0: and in fact, as Ali says, after very skilled mortuary technicians have uh, reconstructed the body, people often look better than they did before they had the postmortem. So uh, it's something people are often afraid of: what people will look like after a PM but uh, it's perfectly acceptable to then go on and have an open casket and to have viewings of the deceased um, because, really, it's just a a surgical operation. If you think of it more as a surgical incision, and it's a final operation that somebody can have, but people are treated with respect and dignity, the organs are always returned, um, unless any is removed with consent to have a look at under the microscope, in which case a piece about the size of a postage stamp uh, would be retained. But other than that, everything goes back in, and they're reconstructed and can be dressed. They'll have their hair washed, and they'll look very good afterwards. So we've heard that the cause of death of David is myocardial infarction due to a thrombus in his blood vessel, a blood clot, which developed because he had severe atheroma. Atheroma is one of those things that can develop as you get older, but we've heard he's only 46. Peter, why would somebody of 46 develop a heart attack like this?
4: it's it's very worrying when somebody of this age has a heart attack we know that heart attacks are the scourge of our society at the moment but they generally affect people a little bit older and uh, you'd want to know whether there are any of what we call the risk factors for heart disease uh, that could have been picked up maybe at the post-mortem or not. So it would be very nice to know whether he smoked or not. But Ali didn't mention, uh, she'll have looked at the lungs and she would have been able to tell whether he was a heavy smoker or not and didn't mention that and we'd find out uh, from his brother whether he was a smoker or not very easily. Did he have diabetes? We know that causes heart attacks in people younger than they otherwise would have them. But again, nothing was mentioned in the post-mortem that would suggest he had diabetes. Um, He's not obese. You can see that. And we've heard that he plays football regularly or he played football regularly, so he's pretty fit and active. So we're losing all of these risk factors. Uh, Another one would be high blood pressure. Uh, there was nothing in the background. Uh, Ali would have rung the GP up, and the GP didn't mention the had high blood pressure. And Ali would have noticed if the heart was particularly thick because it was coping with high blood pressure, but, but but that wasn't picked up either. So we're running out of clues as to why such a young man should die so suddenly of atheroma, this fatty process in the blood. And the one thing I haven't mentioned so far is... Uh, well, there are two things I haven't mentioned so far. One is chance. We used to say that people had heart attacks just because they, they had bad luck. The dice were were stacked against. These days, we don't talk so much about bad luck as bad genes, and you'll hear a bit more about that in a few minutes' time. The one thing that we don't know about is whether he had a high cholesterol level because cholesterol is a very important determinant as to whether somebody might get this furring-up process called atherosclerosis. And there are some conditions, as we'll hear in a few minutes, where genes can make cholesterol higher in some people than it otherwise would be. So those are the thoughts that I'd be having on this patient.
0: Right, so genes, genetics, things running in the family We know somebody who might be a bit worried about that So John went to see his GP to talk to him about was he at risk of having a heart attack And here he is telling his wife about the conversation
2: So how did it go with the GP today?
5: Oh, you know, it's just just a usual sort of thing He just asked me how I was getting on and just a few questions about my health in general
2: What did he ask you?
5: Well, he started by asking if anybody else in the family has heart disease or diabetes.
2: Hmm. Well, your mum's fine. And your dad, well, your dad died when he was really young in an accident. Did he have any heart disease?
5: Well, he didn't have any problems with his heart as far as I know. But, I mean, it was such a long time ago and he never said. I just, I just don't know why David would die just so young. It, it just doesn't make any sense to me.
2: Did the doctor test you for anything?
5: He wanted to see what my cholesterol levels were, so he did a blood test. Uh, that's why I had to skip breakfast this morning.
2: Oh, you must be starving. Yeah,
5: know I had to sneak in from McDonald's on the way to work. Oh,
2: that's going to do your cholesterol no good whatsoever, <laughs> mister. <laughs> <laughs> when did he say the test result was coming back?
5: Well, I'll get the results in a few days' time, but I mean, I, I'm not worried. Um, doctor said my blood pressure is fine, 130 over 80, he said. And I feel like I'm in pretty good shape now, doing more exercise.
2: Oh, you're doing loads of exercise at the moment, and you've quit smoking, so I bet the GP's pretty pleased with that. Did you want to know about anything
5: else? Uh, alcohol. Um, he, he asked me how much I was drinking these days. I didn't think it was that much, but I tell you what, I didn't realise how many units there were of alcohol and half a pint of my favourite beer. I mean, it was two units. I mean, I thought it was one at most, but, uh, you know.
2: <laughs> and we drink so much wine at the weekend as well. We should probably try and work out how many units we're getting through.
5: Yeah, I never told them about the wine. So, I mean, and then the next thing, after all the questions, I had to pee into a bottle, and he tested it for sugar. That's
2: disgusting. (laughs) Why do you want to look at sugar in your pee?
5: I was to see if I had diabetes, but it was fine. There was no problems with that.
2: So he asked you about your family history and about exercise and about uh, smoking and about alcohol. And then he measured your blood pressure, Mm -hmm. tested you for diabetes and tested your cholesterol. It's a lot of risk factors.
5: Yeah, stress, that's another one. Um, but I told them, you know, things are going pretty well at work and obviously home life's great, so there's no problem with stress.
2: <laughs> you know what? I'm just thinking now whether I'll be at risk of heart disease. I don't really have any family history and life's not that stressful, to be honest with you.
5: Well... Maybe you could be getting some more exercise.
2: You cheeky kid. Are you saying I'm putting on weight?
5: Well, no, I'm just saying, you know, it gets a bit boring jogging around the park by myself. It'd be quite nice if we could do something together.
2: I suppose we could go cycling or maybe even swimming. Um, then at least we could do that as a family. We'd all be seeing each, uh, each other a lot more. And at least we'd know the kids were healthy as well. But, you know, if we're going swimming, you will have to go and buy some new swimming trunks because there's no way I'm being seen dead in public with you and those grotty old Speedos.
0: <laughs> it sounds like John's got a great GP. They've really looked into all the risk factors, given him a, a thorough M.O.T., um, Peter, what do you think about that? Is he, does it sound like he's at high risk?
4: Well, he sounds pretty much like David, unfortunately. The, the GP's not being able to un, unfold any obvious risk factors for his heart disease, uh, or at least for, to, that, that would hint that he has heart disease. And so it really is now down to the chemical pathologist to tell us what they've found in his blood to see whether his cholesterol level is raised, because the clue may lie there.
0: Right, then I'd like to introduce clinical biochemist Uh, Katie Heaney who's going to tell us what
1: John's cholesterol level was. Thank you Susie. Well luckily for John his GP's pretty savvy. He's done a full test on him. That includes a fasting lipid profile. So a fasting lipid profile as John was saying you had to skip breakfast in the morning. We want a 12-hour fast where you have nothing but water. After that you have your blood test done and you have your lipids tested. This includes cholesterol and triglycerides. Now cholesterol You can see behind us is an essential part of the human body. We all need it to survive, so we can't do without it. We need it for creating the building blocks of the other things that we need in the body. For example, our sex hormones, so testosterone or estrogen. Also the stress hormone, cortisol. If you just knocked off a few of the bits on the end and added a few bits on the other side, you'd actually create testosterone pretty quickly. So, we've had a look at the cholesterol level. When we look at cholesterol, we need to consider what's a high level and what's a low level. And the problem with a high level is as your cholesterol level gets higher, more of it lies down in your arteries along the artery wall. And as Ali was saying earlier, as these levels build up and it builds up on the artery wall, it forms what's called a plaque. And when you get older, your plaques become more unstable. And when your plaque becomes unstable, it breaks off and that's what causes a heart attack. Or if that bit that's broken off goes to your brain, that's what causes a stroke. So when we look at cholesterol levels, we say this cholesterol level is a high risk or this cholesterol is a low risk. A low risk level of cholesterol would be less than 4 millimoles per litre. Unfortunately for John, his cholesterol level has come back as 9 millimoles per litre. So this puts him in a very high risk of having a heart attack. When you put that together alongside John's brother having a heart attack under the age of 60, so what we would call at a young age, John is actually diagnosed with what's called familial hypercholesterolemia. I'm just going to call it FH because that's easier. When you look at the word FH or familial hypercholesterolemia, that word contains the words cholesterol... We have hyper, so that's talking about a high level, and the word familial, so this is telling us it's an inherited disease, and is actually responsible because he has a faulty gene. Great,
0: so talking of genetics, I think we need a geneticist, and here we'll bring in Dr. Ian Thraling, who will talk to us a little bit more about familial hypercholesterolemia.
7: Thank you, Susie. So, if we want to understand more about what's going on, we need to narrow down from the gross pathology to the physiology to the genes if we get to the root cause then we can advise the family on what might be going on in the family and who's at risk of what. So at the top the blue that's a liver cell and the white bit at the bottom is the blood and there's fat in the blood which is in stuff called LDL and it's taken up by the liver by a protein binding to it called the LDL receptor here and that's encoded in cellular instructions of the gene called the LDLR gene. That's fairly easy now, if that doesn't work, you don't pull the cholesterol out of the blood, it builds up in the blood, you have a cholesterol 9, and it takes out your coronary arteries, as we've seen. So, let's just have a look at the human genome. 23 pairs of chromosomes, one of each pair from each parent. There's 3,000 million base pairs of DNA here, 21,000 genes, and where is the LDLR gene? Well. It's here, right on the end of chromosome 19, and if we understand that, we know exactly which gene to go looking in to try to get a very precise diagnosis. Now, John's cholesterol is 9, and that's sky high. You can be pretty confident he's got FH. But if it was 6.8 or 7, you're not so sure. And about 15% of people fall into that grey area, and that's why we want to get at the genes then we can be absolutely sure, because he might just have a high cholesterol because of multifactorial reasons, bad diet, etc. So if you unravel a chromosome, and chromosome 19 here would be about 64 million base pairs long, and the LDLR gene would be about 54,000 base pairs long, and the bit inside it that makes the instructions for the protein is about 5,000 letters of DNA code. So, armed with the knowledge of exactly which gene we need to go at, out of all those 21,000, we can go doing that in the lab. But first a bit about the inheritance. Here's somebody affected with FH. One of their chromosome 19s has a mutation on it, which is in red. Their wife has two normal chromosome 19s, and it doesn't matter which one they pass on. But if the father passes on that one, this person is not affected. And if they pass on that one, they are affected. And so there's a 50-50 chance they'll pass this gene on, and there's a 50-50 chance this person's siblings would have inherited it, and likewise back up through the family and down through the rest of the family tree. So here's a real family. There's John, cholesterol of nine. We know he's got FH, and I know which gene we want to go looking in. One of his parents will have passed on the gene to him, and here's his brother David. They've all got children. There's two parents here, one of whom is deceased, extended relatives. They're all at risk. We don't know. Even this lady up here at 89, all her other factors may be really good, but we just don't know. And in some families, we see something being inherited from both sides even. So what can we do about this? Well, we need to look in the LDLR gene in John, and we do that in the laboratory. And we can get DNA from blood or saliva or even the tissue blocks from a post-mortem. And we can get the DNA out. A robot will mix it all up with a load of chemicals to amplify the LDLR gene. And then we can put that onto a DNA sequencer and we can get the data out. And clinical scientists will look through all the letters of the LDLR gene. You're talking about 5,000. It takes a while to do that. But it's quite possible, and software helps to do that. And here's a bit of the LDLR gene, just a bit. And the eagle-eyed of you will notice that that C is a G. And that is a mutation that was found in a family in Holland. And we know that that's pathogenic. It causes disease. But we have to interpret in the light of the findings, because mutations are good, bad or indifferent. And the only way you can find out is to amass all the information from all the other sorts of pathologists and clinicians to get your answer. So we are confident this is the cause and we would say, yes, other family members can be tested. But you just don't go testing people willy-nilly. You have to be careful. Parents are worried about guilt about passing genes on. Siblings who don't inherit a gene can have what's called survivor guilt in that they are other brother or sister, has inherited it, so you need to explain this to people before they have genetic tests. This is powerful stuff, and you need to do it in the right context. So, what you find is that one of John's sons has inherited it, and the other one has not, and David's son has done so, but his daughter has not. So they now can be advised and have treatment appropriately, and unnecessary treatment can be avoided being given to those who have not inherited the gene.
0: Right. So, Katie, what
1: does this mean for John and his two nephews? Unfortunately, the diagnosis of FH means there's no easy fix. There's nothing simple that can be done straight away and magically you're all better. The first thing that we need to do, and the main principle of all of it, is reducing your risk factors. There are some risk factors we can't do anything about. If you're a man, you're not going to be able to change that overnight, certainly not your genetics of it. And if you're a man, you're at a higher risk than if you're a woman the other thing is your age. We're all getting older and there's nothing that you can do about that um, and that will increase your risk. But there are risk factors we can do something about. The most obvious one is diet. Making sure that you have a healthy balanced diet, five fruit and veg a day, two portions of fish a week, one of which should be oily, reducing your saturated fat, moving to polyunsaturated if you have to have some, moderating your alcohol intake and generally losing weight to make sure you're on a healthy balanced diet when you look at other things that you can moderate for example there are exercise they recommend that you should have 30 minutes of exercise a day even if you're doing the vacuuming and you manage to break a sweat that still counts so it's a good reason to clean your house other factors smoking smoking can really seriously increase your risk of heart disease and john would be seriously advised not to smoke and so would his children as they were growing up as well Unfortunately for John and his family, a genetic cause, again, is not something you can do anything about. And for John, he's been identified as having a high level of cholesterol, and that needs to be tackled. And it's going to be tackled with medication, and medication for the rest of his life. Fortunately, there is a drug, it's called a statin. It's very effective at lowering your cholesterol level. It does need to be taken for the rest of his life. And unfortunately, there are a small number of patients who will get quite serious side effects from taking that drug, certainly as you increase your levels up. Um, Muscle cramps, um, there are other drugs where you might get some flushing, that kind of thing. This can be very uncomfortable for people. And he needs to report any of those side effects back to his GP. John's cholesterol level will need to be monitored at least once a year, but certainly at the beginning of his treatment it will be monitored more regularly and to make sure that his treatment is working and progressing well.
0: Great, thank you. So we've heard about the cholesterol levels and the genes that have been inherited by John and David and their families. But Peter, should all of us be worried about having familial hypercholesterolemia? Would we know if we had it?
4: Well, you wouldn't necessarily know you've had it, clearly as this family didn't until tragically one of them had a heart attack. And actually familial hypercholesterolemia, or FH, is commoner than you might imagine. One in 500 of the population carries one of these abnormal genes and it doesn't always lead to extremely high cholesterol levels as Ian has rather suggested. So it is quite important that anybody uh, over the age of 40 uh, knows what their cholesterol is and that's part of the reason why there is now a national screening program to look at your vascular health which will include a cholesterol level to try and find out whether you are one of these people at uh, extreme risk or whether you just... Just have what is called an average cholesterol. But I would also add, just having an average cholesterol does not mean you are not at risk of a heart attack. So not having FH does not mean you can smoke and you can eat as much fat as you like because you are still at risk of a heart attack. Uh, everybody in this room is at risk of a heart attack and you can all do something to reduce that risk through your diet through exercise, by not smoking, and if necessary, by taking treatment to reduce cholesterol. And the very good news about statins is that they really are extraordinarily effective at bringing cholesterol levels down, and most people tolerate them extremely well. Before we had statins, we had a real problem. Now, life is much easier for people with FH.
0: So, that brings us to the end of our scenario. We found out what's happened. We found out why David died. We found out what the implications are for his family for his brother, for his children, and for the extended family. Now we're going to give you an opportunity to hear a little bit about what the pathologists who've been involved this evening do. I'm going to start off with uh, Katie Heaney. Can you tell us a little bit what it means to be a clinical
1: biochemist? Well, just to start off with, um, I'm not a doctor. Surprise! I'm actually a clinical scientist. So I've done my science degree, my science master's, and now I'm halfway through my pathology exams through the Royal College of Pathologists. I work in clinical biochemistry... So that's the section of pathology which does all the tests like cholesterol, glucose, thyroid function. Some of those might be ringing bells with you. In my department alone, we do 7 million tests a year, and we're only a small hospital. So we do an awful lot of tests, a very large range. And often, when we're monitoring people in ITU, we do very regular tests, maybe every one or two hours. My specialist part is to look after point-of-care testing. So point-of-care testing is when we actually take small bits of kit out... Next to the patient, and we can give laboratory tests right there, right then. So the treatment can be made the treatment decision can be made immediately to help support that patient and that patient's care.
0: Great, thank you. Now we've already met Ian Frailing, but Ian, apart from F H, what else do you do as a geneticist?
7: One of my particular interests is in actually familial bowel cancer. That actually bears us strange resemblance to FH as it happens because it's one of those forms of predisposition to supposedly common diseases and by identifying people and giving them appropriate treatments such as colonoscopy you can see off the nasty effects of carrying a gene i'm happens to be director of the genetics laboratories for wales so we provide about 12000 tests a year which doesn't sound an awful lot but as you've seen today Uh, These are tests for life. These have implications for large numbers of individuals when you've perhaps found a mutation. And I have a team of 68 staff who look for mutations. They're roughly half of them are clinical scientists like Kate and the other half are genetic technicians. We're looking forward to uh, the future because much, much more medicine is going to be determined by the genes you carry. We can even as a variant in one gene that can perhaps predict who's going to suffer the muscle pain when they get given a statin. So we can even predict that before they get given it. Thank you.
0: Now the third pathology specialty represented here this evening is histopathology. And I've already mentioned I'm a histopathologist. I'd like to invite Ali Stanley, who did the postmortem, to come up also a histopathologist and we have two more dr brendan Kong, if you'd like to come up here and dr maisha de Heragoda, also histopathologists um, and we're just going to tell you a little bit about what we do in our day jobs ali
6: i'm as well as doing postmortems i have a special interest in liver pathology so i look at diseases related to obesity or alcoholic liver disease as my everyday practice Brendan.
5: Yep. I originally trained as a dentist. I got a bit bored with drilling and filling. I did some more training and now I'm uh, specialised in the pathology of diseases of the head and neck.
2: I'm a histopathologist. I spend a large part of uh, my career uh, in research and I'm also, uh, I also spend a large part of my time uh, teaching and training medical students and junior doctors.
0: Right. And as a histopathologist, I specialise in diagnosing inflammatory bowel disease, which is a chronic condition affecting the bowel often of very young people. So you can see that although we're all histopathologists and all members of the same specialty, we have very different jobs looking at cancers, chronic diseases, doing teaching, research, and even looking at head and neck in relation to Brendan's dentistry experience. Um, so, you've heard from three of the different pathology specialties, but as I've mentioned, there are actually 18 different specialties. And they include things like immunology, looking at allergies and the way in which the immune system causes disease, toxicology, measuring drugs and chemicals in the blood to find out, and the body tissues and fluids to find out uh, what the levels are and what damage they may have caused, pediatric pathology, looking at abnormalities of babies and young children and in terms of heart disease particularly diagnosing congenital heart disease things like holes in the heart um, and things that babies are born with often that's done at post-mortem examination sadly when babies die with a heart defect that can't be survived but the really valuable thing that pediatric pathologists can contribute is letting the parents know whether there are any genetic reasons why that disease occurred so that they can then plan future pregnancies and it's a very important role of paediatric pathologists. Uh, We haven't mentioned microbiologists, they're involved in the study of infection, in the diagnosis of infections with bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites, all of those. They'll diagnose and treat them looking at things like antibiotic sensitivities, working out which tablets are going to help if you have a particular infection. They also play a very important role, an increasing role nowadays, in infection control. Making sure that infections don't pass from one person to another. So you will have heard of hospital superbugs, things like C. difficile and MRSA. And microbiologists are really at the forefront of trying to contain those infections and make sure that you can't catch anything nasty when you go into hospital. Hematologists, many of you will have heard of, they study diseases of the blood and the bone marrow and when, obviously, the blood very closely related to the heart and the circulation. If you have anemia, if you don't have enough red blood cells in your blood, then that puts extra strain on your heart and can cause heart failure. Um, uh, We've already heard from uh, Katie, clinical biochemist, about cholesterol and we heard earlier about testing for diabetes, which is a risk factor for heart disease. But also you can measure things like heart enzymes which may be released into the blood when the heart is damaged and give an indication that that's where perhaps the chest pain was coming from and it wasn't another cause. So pathologists are involved in the whole gamut of tests particularly in heart disease, as we've seen tonight. But there's one person among us who's not a pathologist, um, that's Peter, who's a cardiologist. And Peter, could you just say a few words about the impact you think pathology has on heart disease?
4: As I said earlier, I'm a cardiologist, and we think we're pretty smart actually as cardiologists. We can see patients and we can make a diagnosis on them. Actually, had I seen John, or Brendan, as he actually is, uh, and he asked me, am I at risk of a heart attack? I couldn't have told him. I had no way of doing it without the chemical pathology that tells us about whether there's diabetes there, whether there is uh, uh, hypercholesterolemia there, or a whole variety of other things. If you like, we're a bit like the front of house in a, in a very well-run restaurant. We get all the glory, but actually the people doing the cooking in the back are the pathologists. They're the ones who are actually doing the hard work and telling us what's going wrong. We just hand over the, the, uh, the result at the end of the day. And I, I'd, I'd like to end where we really began, and that is that most of what you've heard today about coronary heart disease, atherosclerosis in the arteries leading to a heart attack, being caused by hyperplasteremia, all started off with pathologists like Michael Davies, I mentioned to you earlier on, who's a BHF-funded pathologist, who did the post-mortems in those very early days, asking the question, why do people have heart attacks? What's going on inside those arteries to cause the heart attack? It was him who described the blood clots which killed people. That's what led on to the current modern-day treatments. And so as clinicians, the people who treat you on a day-to-day basis, we couldn't do our jobs without the pathologist telling us what's wrong with you and also telling you whether, telling us whether your treatment's worked or not, because there's no point in giving you a statin and not checking to see whether your cholesterol has fallen as a result. By looking at you, I couldn't possibly tell.
0: Thank you. So you've seen how some of the different pathology specialties contribute to the diagnosis of just a single type of heart disease that we've heard about, familial hypercholesterolemia causing a heart attack. You've also heard about the much wider range of pathology specialties that there are. That brings us to the end, and I hope you've seen, learnt a little bit about pathology. We've learnt a lot about heart disease. And so the reason we think pathology is so important, it's a very basic science that underpins all of medicine. You've heard all doctors, GPs, hospital uh, doctors in all the different specialties rely on pathologists to give them the results of tests. Uh, We think it's important that you understand what you're having your tests for, what you're taking your medicines for, But we're also trying to make sure that healthcare professionals understand so that when you go to see your GP, they explain to you properly what the LDL and the HDL mean so that they understand about pathology and they're not just getting a bit of paper and saying, well, it says normal. We also want the managers and the commissioners, the people who actually decide what services are provided for you in your area to understand the importance of pathology. They may think we'll have a shiny new operating theatre but if they don't think about the pathologists that are supporting it, it's no good to anybody. So I'd just like to thank all of the panel um, for their contribution tonight, and particularly Mario for playing the statue, um, which he's becoming an expert at. I'd like to thank Siemens, who are our sponsors. I'd like to thank Peter and the British Heart Foundation for working on this with us, and the team at the Royal Institution for having us in here. Thank you very much.
3: That's all from this National Pathology Week podcast. Do please check out the others in this series where we're exploring the process of getting a new heart, the art and ethics of modern healthcare, and why thinking heart could save a baby's life. You can find out more about National Pathology Week online at nationalpathologyweek.org and you can visit the Royal College of Pathologists online at rcpath.org. I'm Ben Valsler from the thenakedscientists.com and thank you for listening.